Welcome, friends. You're listening to the Ultimate Outcome Sermon Podcast. Here's Richard Elwell with today's sermon. Well, good morning. So, um, you know, the things that we can easily overlook uh, in terms of how they benefit us, I was thinking about moms and I was thinking, you know, moms, what, what is one thing that God has really blessed you with to uh, help you with your job as a mother and uh, that you could easily yourself overlook? What are some of the important factors that necessary for you to have a climate in which you can successfully raise your kids? And um, by virtue of uh, the transition into our topic today, uh, I bet moms never sit down and go, thank God for the rule of law. <laughs> but think about it for a second. Uh, what would the job of motherhood be like uh, in terms of raising children if we didn't function under what God gave us through Israel, what we call the rule of law, that all men are under and accountable um, to moral principles? You know, when moms raise children in lawless or nearly lawless uh, subcultures, it is a much steeper climb to do a good job, isn't it, than if they're raising their kids in a well-ordered law-abiding culture. The blessing of the law is not only overlooked easily by uh, moms, but it's overlooked by all of us. It, oftentimes, we even think of the law not as a blessing, but as a burden, uh, that somehow the law is burdening us. I would, I would guess that on Thanksgiving Day, when we get together and we give thanks for all of the blessings of God that you've rarely heard, or I've never really heard, uh, someone get up and say, thank God for the Ten Commandments. Thank God for the law. Thank God for the moral principles that he has given our culture under which we can live and be free and have liberty. Have you ever praised God on Thanksgiving Day for the divine law that he gave to us through Israel. You know, we, um, if we were to categorize all of the blessings of God, all of the blessings of God would fall into one or two categories. It would either fall under the category of God's law or it would fall under the category of God's grace. Everything that God has blessed us with falls into one of those two categories. Uh, now, you know, I know that sometimes when I'm talking about these ideas that are larger than the particular things of our day, you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with the burdens I face today? And let me just encourage you to think about it this way. Uh, when we take a, a farther view uh, of perspective of life and history, we get a better idea of our present uh, for example, if we're going to look at the earth from the perspective of space, we get a better idea of what the earth is actually like and get a greater understanding and wisdom of, of how it functions than we would as, if we were a little ant on a, on a beach crawling in the sand, looking at the various little uh, um, grains of sand. And that's what we want to do in this series is we want to look at the big ideas so we're better able and have more wisdom and understanding in dealing with the particulars of our life. Are you with me? Yes, one yes, my wife. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so this week we're going to be looking at God's law and how it blesses us. Um, now, next week we're going to be looking at how God's law leads us to his second category of blessings, his grace. 
God's law is the tutor that leads us into his grace. But this week, we're going to be just looking at the blessings that God's law has given to us here today and how we have benefited so mightily from it. There are three categories of law that we see in the Old Testament, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. And we're going to be focusing mostly on um, the moral law this morning and how it has brought us many blessings. And we'll be looking at four particular blessings that the law has brought to us this morning. We're going to look at and see how without the law, we would have no God's divine law. We would have no possibility of justice. We would have no basis for morality. We would have no foundation for human rights. And we would have no chance at being a free and liberated people. We're going to look at the great blessings that the nation of Israel uh, brought to the world through God's moral law, the basis of justice, morality, human rights, and liberty. Without the gift of the law, we would have no way of being able to definitely answer the question, what is the right thing to do? Now, you remember the four fundamental questions because I say them fairly frequently. The four fundamental questions are, where did we come from? Why are we here? What is the right thing to do? And where are we going? Well, without the revelation of God's divine law, we would have no way of answering the question, what is the right thing to do? That's one of the things we're going to be demonstrating here today. There's no way of having a basis for morality or justice without understanding uh, the gift that we have been given through Israel. What is the right thing to do? Well, who decides what is the right thing to do? Who decides what is right and wrong, good or evil? Well, you've heard me share this illustration before, but I'd like to do it again uh, because it really exemplifies the three ways in which people answer that question. How can we know what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong? Um, it, It was well over 20 years ago in the 80s that I attended a seminar at Cal State San Bernardino. It was entitled, Is AIDS a Moral Issue? And uh, they had on the panel, this discussion panel, they had a theologian, a philosopher, a social worker, um, an AIDS activist, and a medical doctor. And this whole panel came to the conclusion that AIDS was not a moral issue, it was simply a medical scientific issue. And so, Uh, In the question and answer period time, I I addressed the philosopher on the panel. Uh, She was a woman, and and I I said, as a philosopher, you know that there are three areas in which men seek to determine what is good and what is bad. There is God's divine law. You know, what God has revealed is good is good, and what God has revealed is evil is evil. There's a utilitarian argument, that is, when we argue whatever is good for society as a whole is good, and whatever is bad for society as a whole is bad. And then there's the argument of the individual right of self-determination, that each man can decide for himself what is right and wrong. And I said to her, now I know that we won't agree on our basis of morality, because I come from a theological point of view that God has revealed what is good, and he has revealed what is evil, and that morality is based on his revelation. And she said, you're right, we don't agree with that. I said, but what about the common good argument? I said, let's take a look at the morality of AIDS from just a common good argument. 
I said, since AIDS is, and the scourge of AIDS and the disease of AIDS is bad for society as a whole, not just the subcategory of the homosexual community, but it's bad for all of us. We lose friends and family and, you know, it's a burden on the healthcare system. It's, it's not good for anybody. And since it's a, it's a harmful thing to society as a whole, and since the main means by which this disease is transmitted is through sodomy, shouldn't we therefore then conclude by the common good argument that sodomy is immoral? And she said, well, the problem with your argument is we no longer consider the common good to be the highest, greatest good. We, deter we now consider the right of individual self-determination to be the highest, great of greatest good, that each man should be able to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. So it was a really clear moment of clarity to you know, look at the three different uh, ways that we would argue what is good and bad. But let me just say to this, this to you this morning, what if it's true that morality is based on our, each of our own individual opinions? then there is no basis of morality because there's 5 billion opinions on the face of the earth. Who ultimately can say what's good or bad? Or if, 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 if good and evil is decided by a group of men, then what group of men has the right to decide what is good and evil? And how can one group say another group is wrong if, if the common good argument is true? Look, the thing is, is that either in groups or in individuals, we all have a bias. We can't help it. If we're going to be the ones that determine morality, we're always going to determine morality based on what's most beneficial to us, right? If I'm the one in charge of deciding what's good and bad, if I'm the one in, charging, in, 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 in charge of de determining what's just and unjust, uh, me and my buddies are going to be better off than you and your buddies, uh, because I'm the one in, in, in the decision-making role and I'm going to do things that favor myself. That's just the nature of man. In order for justice and morality and human rights and liberty to exist, there has to be something above us all that tells us all what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust. Uh, you know, in order for the law to uh, enable us to have liberty, it has to be a law that is above us. And that's what we call the rule of law, that the law is above everybody, including the king. Are we willing to form associations based on the unchanging principles um, expressed in God's will and God's revelation and God's design? Or are we going to develop our culture based on the ch changing winds of human desire and the will of the dominant, which will change over time. Thankfully, God has revealed to us through Israel his divine law that gives us a basis for justice, for morality, for human rights and human liberty. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And the message this morning is entitled... Um, Oh, here are, the, uh, here are the three areas of, of um, morality, divine law, revealed truth, utilitarian, common good, individual self-determination. Should have gone to that slide. Um, this morning, uh, the message uh, is entitled, Laws to Live By, and we'll be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and
We thank you, Father, for this time together. And we pray, Father, that we could see into your word the whole purpose of why you gave your law to Israel and how you gave it to her even to bless us today. Lord, we, we can see, Lord, in your word that what you did for Israel, you didn't just do for Israel, but you did for us. And we pray, Father, that as we look into your word, that we would come to appreciate the gift that you've granted to us through your nation, Israel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, beginning at verse 5. It says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking to Israel. That you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. So keep them and do them, because when you do, that will be wisdom and understanding in the sight of the other nations, the other peoples, who when they hear all of these statutes will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that is set before us today. So God's thinking here, he's thinking not just of Israel, but he's thinking of you. He's thinking of us. He's thinking of each of us as he's giving Israel the law. He's thinking, you know, what is it that I can do through Israel that will be a blessing to the nation? Well, I can give them laws and decrees that will make them such a great nation that the other nations will see how great they are and they'll desire to be like them, that they'll want to apply the plan that I have given Israel to themselves because they're going to observe Israel and they're going to see the surpassing greatness of this nation and the wisdom that's inherent in the principles by which they rule themselves. All the people of the earth will look upon Israel and want what she has when they see the consequence and the product of her following God's will. The theme of the message this morning is this. God's divine law is the basis of a nation's greatness. Let's take a look at verses five and six again. His divine law, you know, uh, we, we uh, have thought of ourselves as a great nation, but how much of our greatness is based on the Judeo-Christian principles that we were founded on? And how much is our greatness going to fade as we abandon those principles? God's divine law is the basis of a nation's greatness. Um, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering in to take possession of. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is wise, is a wise and understanding people. Israel is to become a great nation, 
not just for her own sake, but for the sake of the example that she will give to all the other nations, that as a result of her prosperity and her well-being that is consequent to her following God's will, it will be obviously so superior to the other nations, so great will it be as an example that it will become an incentive to the other nations to follow her lead and want to do things her way. Uh, Unfortunately, the history of Israel has had its ups and downs. There have been times in her history where she's been obedient to God's will and flourished. But a good deal of the time, Israel decided not only not to be an example to the other nations, but to copy the other nations that are around her. She was intended to be a nation that other nations would copy. But in her desire uh, to be like the other nations, she often copied them instead. Um, uh, She often imitated those dark practices that keep uh, society debased. Gratefully, however, her influence remains a blessing to us today, and we are currently uh, locked up in in various debates in our country, especially during a political season, on what will make our nation better. Uh, The one thing that all people have in common and all sides have in common is the conviction that their political vision will be what will make the nation better. But what will truly make us better what truly makes us better the, as, as human beings and as a society. Um, the, the thing that makes a culture great is the degree to which it understands, keeps, and applies the principles of God's law. You know, we're always in a constant struggle for what is better, but we will always fall short of our, and continue in our strivings if we don't learn what Moses was trying to teach Israel in this passage. God shows us that there is a way forward, a way forward into greatness, and a way forward into greatness is through applying his statutes, his rules, and his laws to guide us as a nation, principles that will give us wisdom and understanding. It's kind of like this. Are we going to have the attitude of an apprentice towards a journeyman? You know, are we going to look towards the older and wiser guy to teach us how to do our trade or how to form our society or how to build our nation? Or do we think we're smarter than the journeyman who is teaching us? God is our journeyman and he has given us principles to how to create and design a free and prosperous society. And if we apply those principles, we're going to have the good result as as a result of you know, being in a proper relationship as an apprentice under our master. You know, um, I, I had that opportunity when I was, I was young. When I was 15 years old, my da- dad wanted to build an apartment out behind the garages in our house in Claremont. And so he hired a c- contractor, and the deal with the contractor was, I want you to teach my sons how to do everything in terms of building this apartment. So he taught us step by step, uh, you know, from um, hooking into the sewage to running the electrical to, you know, putting on the drywall to doing the plumbing, all of the things that are inherently necessary to bring all of the parts of the apartment together. And so, you know, as a young guy, my only incentive was 
My dad said, when it's done, you and your brother can live out in the apartment until you leave the house. And we thought, woohoo, go in for dinner and for breakfast and showers and clothes and get to live. Oh, yeah, probably wasn't the greatest decision my parents ever made. But, <laughs> but uh, we were up for it. Uh, but the, the thing is, is that, um, uh, you know, as a good apprentice, I learned a lot from that guy because I was submitted to his tutelage. And, uh, you know, I didn't learn everything. I can tell you that there was one, one day when I was building an apartment out and feeling off the side of our house, uh, you know, before we went into seminary and I was looking for ways to increase our income. Uh, so I was building this apartment to rent out and my wife comes out and she sees me one day on a ladder uh, with a book in my hand and wire nuts reaching up into a junction box. She goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I've never learned how to wire a three-way switch before. And I thought I better learn how to do it before I uh, start putting things together. And so I was following the instructions in this book on how to write, wire a three-way switch. And, uh, you know, the point is, is that when you, when you do things according to the guidance of somebody who knows, you don't end up burning the house down. Now, is, could we ever be any wiser than taking God's counsel? Could we ever be any wiser than taking his counsel and organizing our culture in accordance to his will? Isn't it infinitely wiser to look to God and humbly seek to establish social order according to his design, both in our families, in our society, in our church, and everywhere else, than to try to figure it out ourselves? Um, again, the theme this morning is God's divine law is the basis of a nation's greatness. And point number one is God's divine law is the basis uh, for justice and morality. Let's take a look at verse eight. God's divine law is the basis for justice and morality. And so you know, the, here are these nations looking at Israel. Hypothetically, they're looking at an Israel who's applying and, and um, perfectly following God's will. And they look at the nation and, uh, and they ask themselves, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that is set before us today? So, you know, in contrast, Mo Moses knew that once Israel applied God's law, his ceremonial, societal, and moral law, it would distinguish Israel as a nation that would be marveled at as a superior nation above all other nations. Their wisdom, their beauty, and the benefit of following God's law would be evident, as opposed to uh, the various legal codes that were there in, at the day. You know, here we are. Let, let's go back in our time machine. We're going back to the time when Moses wrote these words in Deuteronomy. We're going back um, over 3,000 years. Uh, this is the dawn of a new day. A new legal code is coming into the world. A new legal code that comes from God, not man. And at the time that this new legal code came into the world, there were other competing legal codes. There were Assyrian codes or Babylonian codes. There are other codes that had the do's and don'ts of, of, of law. But this particular law 
distinguish itself from those laws in three major ways. The ways in which that Israel was distinguished from the laws that were made by man is, first of all, that it was a law that came from God himself. Now, all the other laws that were created prior to God's divine law coming were created by kings. Kings were the ones that created law, and they were the ones that determined the punishment of those laws. So this whole idea uh, of the three ways in which God's law is different is really seen in what we see in our Statue of Liberty. I mean, not Statue of Liberty, our, uh, our Statue of Lady Justice. We see the whole idea of rule of law starts out with the idea that law does not come from a king. It comes from God. It comes from above a king. It comes from above all men. And the king himself is under that law. So that's the first way in which um, the Mosaic law distinguishes itself from, say, for example, the Code of Hammurabi out of Babylon. The rule of law uh, is one in which every man, including the king, is under. And uh, the king can't arbitrarily change the law whenever he wants. He can't make the law for his own preference. He must submit to the law himself. Now, this is the first and important way in which uh, this law is different from the existing laws of that day. The idea of the rule of law. Now, the second way in which um, the, these laws were different is uh, symbolized by the blindfold that's around uh, Lady Justice's statue. She can't see. She, her eyes are blind to the various constituencies that justice is being served to. Now, in the Code of Hammurabi, for example, this was not true. Justice did not have a blindfold. If you were wealthy, guess what? And you killed somebody, guess what? It wasn't considered as much of a crime than if you were poor and killed a rich man. Various constituencies had the law apply to them in different ways. Justice was not blind. Justice could see the status of the person that the law was being applied to. And of course, the king it didn't even apply to the king and his cohorts. No one in the king's court was at all even subject to the law. But the higher station you were in society, the less subject you were to the law. The more you had the right to just do what you wanted outside the law. So we have these ideas in our own codification that we've got from the Bible. For example, the 14th Amendment has a provision that says it assures that all people uh, have the equal protection under the law, the equal protection clause, that we're all equally protected by the law. It's a good idea. I wish it were perfectly applied. But what would it be like without even having the idea, the equal protection clause um, of the 13th Amendment? Uh, reflects this idea that was not even in existence until God's divine law came and put, him, put, it, uh, put that law uh, above all people without preference. Uh, you know, today, Lady Justice is peeking out from under her blindfold. Uh, sometimes for good reasons, uh, we're, we're perverting justice because we're, we're taking groups of people and we're uh, categorizing people in their groups and we're creating preferential groups for uh, specific assigned 
uh, supposedly aggrieved groups. Well, even though the intent might be good, as soon as Lady Justice starts taking her blindfold off for any group, we start losing the concept of blind justice. And then we'll, we'll find that whatever group is in power or in favor will, will be given uh, be, uh, preference, preferential treatment under justice. We need Lady Bl Justice to keep her blindfold on. Uh, everybody needs to be treated equally. Uh, if, if a crime is done against one person, it's just as grievous as if the same crime is done against another. Now, the third uh, way in which this divine law differed from the laws of the day was in the area of punishment, was the area of, of punishment fitting the crime. Idea now that the punishment should fit the crime. That idea was completely foreign to uh, the laws that were codified in the days prior to Moses. Uh, for example, in the Code of Hammurabi, all, all, a lot of the punishments were completely harsh uh, for the crimes that were committed. For example, there was a law in the Code of Hammurabi that prescribed punishment. And, and it says, if your neighbor comes over to your house, now imagine this, your house is on fire, your house is burning down, a neighbor comes over to help you put out the fire. And if when your neighbor comes over to the house to put out the fire, they take something that belongs to you from your house. If they get caught taking something that belongs to you from their house, then you take the neighbor and throw them into the, back into the fire. That's the idea here. That would be the punishment for somebody taking your possessions as you throw them back into the hot fire of the house that they are helping you uh, put out. Totally harsh and, um, and yet uh, unbalanced. In the Old Testament, there's this principle of the eye for an eye, and we make a mistake if we think that the Jews ever took that literally. They never took that concept literally. What it means is that there should be equal. No one ever plucked out eyes uh, or, you know, a cut off hands or anything in the Old Testament. It was, the idea is that, 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 that the crime, the punishment should fit the crime. It should be proportionate to the crime. Uh, and we get that idea encoded in our Eighth Amendment where... In our Eighth Amendment, it prohibits excessive bail, excessive fines, and it prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Today in Saudi Arabia, if you get caught stealing something, you get your hand chopped off. That is a punishment that does not fit the crime. We have codified in our law that punishment has to be uh, not overly harsh, that it has to fit the crime, that a bail cannot be excessive, that fines cannot be excessive, and that punishment cannot be cruel and unusual. That's in our Constitution. Now, justice can be, get perverted. Uh, when I was uh, 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 a poor college student, I would fight uh, every parking ticket that I ever got. I'd go to court over nothing, and I kind of had fun doing it. In fact, I've told you before that one time I was parking in the judge's parking lot, well, parking spot while I was fighting a parking ticket in his court. And since he already thought it was funny, he, he let me off. But um, this, this one case where I was actually arguing the Eighth Amendment, I had been going to Cal Poly. I was trying to save money, so I didn't want to buy the parking permit. So I started parking illegally in different places. 
First, I went through an, uh, uh, at Cal Poly Pomona, I went through a avocado grove and drove on to the staff parking lot, you know, avoiding the arm and the meter and everything. And so for several months, I was the only car, only student car in that parking lot. It was almost always half empty and no one noticed. But a few people started seeing me do it. And suddenly there was a parade of students going into that parking lot. And so one day I saw a cop writing tickets in there. So I stopped parking in that parking lot. And I started, found another one where I could drive sort of over the caretaker's yard and into another the staff parking lot. And same thing happened there. After a couple months, you know, other people started following my suit. So I went way out to the metered parking. Um, the, it cost 75 cents a day back then to park in this one lot out there with an arm. And um, early on, I discovered, I never saw where the electric guy was, but I found where the path was. So my pattern would be that I would go out and put my books in the path and wait for somebody to leave and then drive out and get my books. The arm would stay up and I'd drive off. Well, one day uh, the police saw me and I was, uh, I was delaying my departure because there was a whole line of cars that were following me out. And so I'm standing there with my books in the, in the uh, path of the eye, letting all these cars out of the lot. And the police come up and give me and they said, we finally caught you, and you are going to pay. And I said, okay, um, you caught me. So they gave me a ticket, and uh, um, I called up to find out how much it costs. And back then, it was $50. Well, $50 was a lot of money back then. The parking tickets were $5. So I went into the law library, and I looked up the particular code of that particular parking ticket. And it basically what they had cited me for was a non-moving parking violation. And so I went to court and um, pled innocent. And my trial date was set. And uh, I went to trial and they sent two meter maids and a, and a, and a, and a campus police officer to testify against me. And they got up and told the whole story, you know, starting with the avocado grove. And they knew I was the culprit and they never could catch me. And they finally caught me at this gate. And, you know, um, all three of them testified against me. And finally, it was my turn. And I got up and the judge says, well, what do you have to say for yourself, Mr. Elwell? And I said, well, first of all, I'd like to say everything that the officer said was true. And the judge says, but I thought you pled innocent. And I said, I did plead innocent to um, a moving violation under which I was cited. I said, my violation was a parking violation. And what I did with my vehicle had nothing to do with the uh, op moving operation of the vehicle. I got cited for a simple $5 parking ticket and I'm being fined in the moving violation category. And I'd just like to refer to you to the constitution and the Eighth Amendment, that you're not allowed to have excessive fines. Well, I was such a twerp. But it was true. And so the judge says, okay, boom, 9113A finds you guilty of, of a parking violation. Your fine is reduced from $50 down to $5, pay the bailiff. And um, I had a cheering section in the court at that point. 
And I don't know why I tell you the story. I just uh, tell you the story that we're protected from, uh, even though I deserved, you know, a lot more than the 50 bucks, but we're protected by these principles that the uh, allocation of justice can't be arbitrary. It's fixed in accordance to the crime that we're charged with. Um, Now, we take these principles for granted. You know, what if they weren't true? What if, you know... um, you know, a Democrat was in charge or a Republican was in charge and you're on the other side of the party. So they treat you more harshly because they don't like you. Well, that's the way it is. Most of the world uninfluenced by the rule of law, uninfluenced by these principles that we've, we've gotten from uh, the, the people of Israel through the divine uh, gift of the law from God. All the injustice in our country all the injustice that we see in our country is a violation of all of these three principles, one or all of these three principles. It's a violation of the rule of law. It's a violation of the, you know, the impartial application of the law. It's a violation of fair punishment principles. But without the, the principles, uh, even though there is injustice in our country, we would have no hope for justice or morality or anything else. Uh, we would have no basis for claiming justice. Any permanent standard for justice or morality would be without merit. You know, think about morality for a second. If it weren't for God determining what's good and bad, what are we left with? Well, if st- the state can determine what's good or bad, if, if the state can decide what standing did the Nuremberg trials have to say that Nazi Germany was wrong? If there isn't a law above man, why can one state say to another state, you were wrong? Of course, the only basis to condemn Hitler and the Nazis was that law comes from a higher source. They are wrong. They violated God's law. What about if each individual can decide for themselves? If each individual can decide morality for themselves, why can we say that Charles Manson is immoral and evil? He, if, he, if he can determine good and bad himself, then what are we to say that he's wrong? The only way we can say that he's wrong isn't to say I'm right and you're wrong. It's to say God's right and you're wrong. You understand me? So there is no basis for justice or morality without the law being, uh, without God being the origin of the law. So our theme again this morning is God's divine law is the basis of a nation's greatness. And point number one is God's divine law is the basis for justice and morality. And point number two is God's divine law is the basis for human rights and liberty. Let's take a look at verse eight again. It's the basis for human rights and liberty. God's divine law is the basis for human rights and liberty. And what, na- and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that is set before you today? The idea here is not only will your nation be su- superior in terms of morality and justice um, as evidenced of God's standards, but it will also be clearly evident that the people will be free and their rights will be uh, upheld. 
we also establish and protect the idea of liberty and human rights because the law is above us. Our liberties are assured only if we are ruled by just laws that are not arbitrary and not the will of another human being or the men who are in power. We say in our own constitution that human rights are what? They're inalienable. That means other men can't take them away. Other man can't take them away because other men didn't give them to us. It is God who gave us our rights. And because God gave them to him, to us, we have, no one has the right to take them away from us. But if our rights have been conferred upon us by the government or by the king, then the king or the government would have the right to take them away and they would not be inalienable. Our founders understood that our rights were based in God's law. Um, you know, when we say, what are our rights? Well, some of our human rights that are articulated in the Bill of Rights are like freedom of speech, the liberty to say what we want to say. Why are we free to say what we want to say? Because God has uh, uh, ordained that we have that liberty, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of press, freedom to own and possess and dispose of our own private property. You know, all of these principles come out of the negative uh, statements in the Ten Commandments, things that no one is allowed to do to you because God has given you the right for them not to violate you in this way. You know, when it says, thou shalt not steal, no one has the right to take from you the liberty to say whatever you want because it belongs to you. No one has the right to tell you how to think or how to how to decide for yourself who to worship because you have that right and no one it belongs to you and no one can take it away from you. No one can tell you who to associate with or who to affiliate yourself with. That belongs to you. Men cannot take it away because God has said that they shall not steal. Whatever we possess belongs to us, not because some king uh, ordained it, or some government ordained it, but because God ordained it. And it, that is our only hope for continuing uh, with human rights and human liberties. If the king can ordain it, the king can take it away. If man gives rights, man can take rights away. Rights are only secure and liberties only secure if the authority that grants those liberties is higher than everyone. Think about the story in, in the Old Testament. You know, remember the story of King Ahab and his, his, um, his wife, Jezebel? Well, King Ahab thought he was above the law, especially after conferring with his wife, and he wanted this vineyard that was right near his palace. And so he thought he had the right of kings, the divine right of kings, and he thought he should, could just kill Naboth and take his vineyard. Well, as it turned out, he's under God. And his wife was under God. And they were answerable to God. And because of that, he was not able to take that, he did take the vineyard, but he was not able to do it uh, without recompense from God himself because he violated God's divine order. Our nation was built on the divine idea that citizens don't belong to the government, but that the government belongs to God. Its legitimacy and its authority is derived from God to do God's will, not its own will. Human rights and human liberty are only possible 
if all men are under the rule of God's divine law. Gratefully, we can say thank you to Israel for blessing the world with this law that shows us these three great principles that bring us all of these blessings, the rule of the law, blind justice, and fair treatment under the law, due process. Uh, These were all introduced to us as God revealed them to Moses, and they were transmitted to us through Israel. Again, this morning, um, oops, I didn't put our, our theme is this morning, God's divine law is the basis of a nation's greatness. Point number one is God's divine law is the basis for justice and morality. And point number two is God's divine law is the basis for human rights and human liberty. I wanted to conclude this morning by sharing a few uh, laws, not out of God's moral law, but out of God's hygiene law. Have you ever thought about how you are blessed today because God uh, told the Israelites how to get rid of sewage? You are. Your health is greatly blessed. In fact, you are more blessed by this idea how to get rid of sewage than all of the (coughs) doctors in America. More uh, um, benefit is done by sewage disposition than by um, the whole medical system uh, because of what happens when people don't do it right. Uh, In God's divine law, his hygiene laws included uh, various things that that protect us even to this day and have protected us for thousands of years. He told the Israelites how to ha- what to do when they're handling dead people. He told the Israels what to do in terms of washing their hands. He told the Israels what to do in the disposition of human waste and the burial of the dead. He told the Israels how to quarantine people who were, who were, who were infectious. Of course, they had no idea what infection was. They would have no idea why to quarantine. They'd have no idea why to bury their feces. They'd have no idea why to, uh, that they were unclean after touching the dead because they had no concept of microorganisms. In fact, it took 3,000 years before we science ever caught up with Deuteronomy. 3,000 years before uh, science caught up with God's word. This guy on your left over here, his name is Ignis Semmelweis, and he was a physician in um, Austria, and he had noticed that in the hospital where he was treating patients, there was a high death rate among mothers who were giving birth. Fully one out of seven of the mothers that were giving birth in his hospital were dying shortly after childbirth. And he noticed that in um, a Jewish hospital, the rate of mortality among women was a lot lower. And he started looking. He didn't know why. He started looking at what their practices were that kept the mortality down. And in his particular hospital, people, the, the interns were going around and they had various rounds. In the morning, they would go into the morgue and do autopsies on dead people. And then in the afternoon, they would deliver babies. And they were transmitting infectious diseases to the mothers, but they didn't even know it. And he didn't know it either. All he knew is, it's a good idea to wash your hands like the Jews do. So they started washing their hands. He, in his hospital, they made him wash their hands. 
He came up with a great deal of resistance for, for decades on this idea, even with the mortality rates going down in his hospital. He didn't know why it worked. He was just following a principle that had been around for 3,000 years. It wasn't until the mid-1800s, you know, Similwise was in the early 1800s, when uh, Louis Pasteur, the guy on the right here, started coming up with theories about microorganisms. You know, when you, get, when you say your milk is pasteurized, it's named after Louis Pasteur because it's pasteurized to, to, uh, to get rid of any of the pathogens that might be in there, the microorganisms that could cause infection. Today, we are blessed with clean hospitals, sewage treatment, burial procedures that give life and preserve us from death. And all those principles were found in God's law 3,000 years ago. Thank you, Israel. Sorry we're so slow to observe what is good and what's been revealed to you. Heavenly Father, Lord, whether in the area of morality or cleanliness, Lord, we come before you and we thank you, Father, that you have granted to us um, principles that bring life and bring prosperity and bring wisdom and bring understanding. And we thank you, Father, even though we may be blind to all of the benefits that we even now experience, we may be blind to the causes that have come to us from Israel. We want to open our eyes and see where we can give our appreciation, foremostly to you, but also to the people that you chose to bless the world. Thank you, Father. May we be grateful for all the ways that today on this Mother's Day, uh, we are blessed by you and by your principles. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our website at ultimateoutcomes.org, where you can download sermons, read our blog, and check out a library of free Bible studies. If you'd like to support our nonprofit, please consider clicking that button in the top right corner that says Donate. We appreciate all the support and help we get. And thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.